Today is Mother's Day, and I just think it's fitting that we ask moms to stand and give them a, a clap of applause and just say thank you. Would moms, would you stand up if you're a mom? Stand up. Stand up with us in here. Sometimes, sometimes I think we're hesitant to that because I know sometimes Mother's Day is a difficult day for some because you desire to be a mom and it hasn't happened or sometimes it's hard because you've lost your mom, but I think it's well worth it just to celebrate and honor moms and just give them a little praise and thank them for what they do as, as moms. Today as you leave moms, we have a, a couple gifts, one from the church, one someone in the church said, I want to bake up some cookies and put them together, so on your way out, uh, they'll be handed to you. Here's the good thing, you're in second service, and they don't want to have leftovers, so you could take a couple extra, maybe take them to your friends or take them to your mom or whatever, but we just ask you to celebrate and, and we say thank you for being here today. I'll tell you, one of the best things we can do for moms though and we do this every year. There's usually some kind of trinket or gift. Maybe it's flowers or something. The best thing we can do is help moms and help dads get in the Word. It's the best gift we can give you. And so there's a great opportunity that's coming for you. It's in your bulletin, but I want to introduce it to you uh, this morning. And it's not just for moms. It's for all women. It's going to be a six-week Bible study. It's going to take place during June and, and into July this summer. What a great opportunity to grow as ladies in the Word of God. And so I want to introduce it to you via this little clip that you get a chance to watch. I can feel that that lack of intimacy with God, being so close to what you feel that you should be doing as a Christian, and at the same time being so far from Him in your heart. I just remember feeling like, God, I hate to say this, but right now your presence isn't just enough. Like, I, I need you to actually show me what this looks like. And literally, we walked out of that office, and yeah, I just turned to my husband and fell into his arms and, you know, asked him to remind me it's not my fault. They did an MRI at the emergency room and found the tumor and that's when my whole entire life shifted. His love for us, his compassion for us, it never fades, it never fails regardless of what you're walking through right now. God sees you, he loves you, and he's not letting go. Y'all, perfection is overrated. And it is certainly not a prerequisite for relationship with Jesus. And that's one of the things I love about this poetry. It is all about this king who is enamored with a regular girl. I realized that no matter how far I had gone, he not only still loves me, but he ran to meet me. Okay, maybe I can't see his goodness in this, but that doesn't mean he's not good. He is. That's where right now I'm finding rest in, in the Lord. When it clicked that I had done nothing and I had already been saved by the work of Christ, it changed everything and I no longer felt like I had to get people's approval because I had God. If you will recount what you love about Jesus, if you will celebrate your divine bridegroom, you will regain intimacy with Him. Praising Jesus will bridge the gap that we ourselves have created. Ladies, it's a great opportunity this summer to grow in God's Word. I want to encourage you to get involved. There's a sign-up table out in the lobby. 
You can also look at kind of the, the Bible study there. They have a sample, so you can check that out. You can sign up there. You can sign up online. I encourage you to get plugged into that. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are going to open up Your Scriptures this morning. And God, I just pray and ask that You would open up our minds and our heart. Lord, we're here sometimes uh, for various reasons. Sometimes, Lord, we show up because it's just routine and we say, well, I'm going to go to church today. Sometimes, Lord, we're here because you literally have drawn us here because you got us out of bed this morning and said, I want you to be in church. Sometimes, Lord, we're here because we're going to be celebrating with friends who are, who are giving their life to Christ. And, Lord, we're here sometimes for various reasons, but I truly believe we're not here by accident. We're here today because, Lord, you have a message for each and every one of us, and you want us to hear your word. And, Lord, not only do you want us to hear it, you want us to put it into practice, put it into action. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the power to do that, that we don't just come in here and hear a message and go home, Lord. I pray that we come in with a mindset, I want to hear it, and I'm going to do what I can in my life to put it into practice. And so, Lord, I pray that you speak to us in this room through your scriptures and give us obedient hearts to follow and do what we hear in your word today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Today we are continuing a series, we've been in for a few weeks now, called Bringing Life to Your Home. Let me review where we've been at. For those of you who maybe have missed or maybe this is your first Sunday with us, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. It's a teaching that's known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is right at the very beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus gives the most powerful sermon ever in history. And if you want to know how to live as a Christian, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and start applying that. And so Jesus is teaching or preaching this message. And as he preaches this message, he's preaching to a very mixed audience, lots of different people, lots of different ages, different backgrounds. And so the message is all encompassing, no matter where you're at in your walk with with Christ. He's saying, here's how you live a blessed life. But what we've done for our purposes for this series is we've said, let's take those, those teachings and let's hone them in and let's focus in on just the family unit and let's say, what do we look at these, these, these beatitudes and what do they tell us about how to have a home that is blessed or how to have a home that is filled with life, that is filled with joy, that is filled with contentment, that is having a home that is being blessed by God. I think if you look around at homes today in America, we see so many homes today that are probably not defined by being a blessed home or a home that's filled with life. We see homes that are filled with struggle and strife many times. Or we see homes that are filled with doubt and despair many times. And we're asking God, God, teach us how to live according to your word so that our homes would be blessed, our homes would have life in them. Here's the key thought we've been looking at each and every week. It's kind of a paradigm shift in how we think about faith, is that we are not just a Christian home but that we're a Christ-centered family. Now you look at that statement and you may say, well, what's the difference there? Christian family, Christ-centered home, aren't they the same thing? Unfortunately, in today's world, the word Christian has been so watered down and it doesn't mean what it used to mean. It used to mean if you call yourself a Christian, you're willing to go to the stake for that. But in our culture today in America, you probably took a survey of 8 out of 10 people. If you said, hey, what, what religious background are you? Most people would probably say, well, I'm Christian. They would choose that word. But to be a Christian, really for them, is maybe not a 
not a hard decision to say I'm a Christian because that's what our culture sometimes teaches or, or guides us to. We even, we even hear that we are a Christian nation in America. So people say, well, I'm part of a Christian nation. I'm part of America, and so I guess I'm a Christian. But there are many, I think, who fall in that realm and would probably be more cultural Christian. I'm a Christian because it's the right thing to say or it's the right thing to do. And about 80% would claim that. But to be a Christ-centered home means that we live quite different lives than those who are Christian in name only. When we're talking about a Christ-centered home, we're not going to be people who just say, I'm a Christian, and just go live in this world any way I want to live in the world. When we say I, I'm, I'm a, we have a Christ-centered home, what we're saying is that, that we're Christ-centered in all that we do. That means we're Christ-centered in our job, we're Christ-centered in our home, we're Christ-centered in how we lead our lives, we're Christ-centered in our values, we're Christ-centered in our priorities of life. If we're a Christ-centered home, what that means is Jesus is number one, my spouse is number two, my kids are number three, my job is number four, and everything else falls in line after that. But what happens in America many times is my kids are number one, and maybe my spouse is somewhere in there, and the job is surely up there towards the top, and Jesus is pushed down the list, and we say Jesus is just one of my priorities of life. But a Christ-centered home, Jesus is number one, and our life centers around Jesus. In other words, Jesus is everything. Jesus is our complete focus. And what we do, we seek Jesus first and then we respond according to what Jesus guides us to do. That's a Christ-centered home, which means our values will be different. The way we raise our children will be different. The way we use our resources, our time, and our money, it'll be different. The way we treat people will be different because Jesus isn't just part of our lives. He is our lives. And so our appeal to you and to the churches, as you look at your home, you go, is it Christ-centered where I am focusing my family with Jesus being at the hub of what we do as a family? Our key for today is this, if you're taking notes and using the guide around you, is that if you're a Christ-centered family, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. That's what the Scripture says. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, fantastic news, Brian. It's, it's Mother's Day, and this is the sermon you chose to preach? I tend not to just guide by the holidays. I try to stay in the text that I'm on, and I'm sorry that this is the one that's landed on. And it's, so it's not maybe just this flowery, comfortable sermon for all of us to hear about how great moms are, but moms and dad need to know that if we're in a Christ-centered home, we're going to focus on that, that persecution will come our way. If you're a Christ-centered family, what we need to understand is that people will mock you. We, we need to understand that people will make fun of you and ridicule you, and, or worse, because that's what happens when you're Christ-centered. If you're just a Christian family, in name only, you may not experience persecution. But when you say Christ is number one, He's my compass, He's the one that sets the direction for everything we do, some difficult times will come. Look at what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Do you see in verse 11 what he's telling you is persecution is actually good. It's actually a good thing. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, he says which is countercultural, doesn't make sense. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if you're in Christ, it will come. It's not it might come. 
If you are walking in Christ, it will come. It's coming one day if you haven't already experienced some difficult, hard times in your faith. Jesus warned his disciples. He's telling them, you live for me. You live as a Christ-centered person. You live as a righteous person. You live as a person who is pursuing me and who's going to follow me. Difficulties are going to come, and they did. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, the following suffered persecution. James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, was beheaded. It is said that on his way to be martyred, James' accuser was so impressed by his courage and his conviction that he repented of his sin, professed himself to be a Christian, and he was beheaded right alongside of James. Because he stood up and said, I believe in what James is telling us. Philip was thrown into a prison and was crucified. Matthew was killed by a sword. Matthias was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified on a cross. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Literally, they would tie someone up and drag them behind some horses and pull them through the streets until literally their arms and feet and legs would start to fall off. Could you imagine going through that type of persecution. Peter is thought he was crucified upside down on a cross because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. So when he died, he said, please turn the cross upside down if you're going to do this. And they honored that request. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew, he was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was martyred by being thrust with a spear. Luke is believed to be hanged on a tree. Simon was crucified and Barnabas was put to death. All 12 of them Gave their life for the cause of the gospel. Because they said, Christ is number one in my life. Not number two, not number three. No, Christ is number one. And Jesus had warned them beforehand, if you follow me, persecution will come. And persecution continues to this day. Last week in India, our brothers and sisters at Catalyst Christian Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky have experienced persecution that hit pretty close to home. They have an orphanage over in India, and Catalyst is about a nine-year-old church, and they started supporting and working with a mission over there where they have a, a, a church, and they have a Christian school and an orphanage with about 100 children. And an Islamic-type group came in and threatened the, the owner of their piece of property where they had 100 children. And he said, listen, here's the deal. They just told him, they said, you kick the school out, you kick the orphanage out, or we take your life. This was just last week. And Dave Kibler, who's the pastor over there, responded and said, folks, we need some help because they kicked out their 100 children and kicked them out in the streets. The, the landowner, who was not favorable in any way, but he was happy because he was receiving their rent, he literally went in and started carrying their desk out and all their beds out and started throwing out in the street and said, you're out of here because his life was being threatened. He chose his life over taking care of 100 children and said, that's okay, throw them out on the street. And Dave Kibler put that out on Facebook and said, church, family, friends, I need help. We need $6,000 to buy a piece of land. We've got to have our own piece so this doesn't happen again. And the church responded in over 24 hours. Over $10,000 was given to help buy a piece of land and start towards a building project. You may not know this, but you were part of that. Because we took some of our mission money, $250, and said, we've got to respond, and we gave some money to help in that project because these children need somewhere to live, and now they're going to try to build their own building. And they have $4,000 going towards that. Persecution is happening to this day. 
In 2014, you probably heard about in Indianapolis, Indiana, where a bakery owned by Randy and Trish McGath found itself in a target of an online campaign launched by gay activists after they cited their Christian beliefs as a reason why they would not provide a cake for a same-sex wedding. They, they were smeared as homophobes and hateful people, although they were willing to serve the gay community, just not participate in a celebration of a same-sex wedding. And their business was affected. You say, how can that possibly be good? God's getting the victory in India. People are responding and seeing, wow, when Christians come together and they respond to persecution, God's name is now lifted up all over social media. In 2014, when Randy and Trish McGath were being persecuted, every newspaper article that they were, they were tested in or, or quoted in, every TV interview they did, every single time they lifted up the name of Jesus because good can come out of persecution and people were strengthened. Some say, well, there's not really persecution happening in America. I mean, let, let's think about it, Brian. I don't know anybody who's been arrested and actually put in jail because of their faith. And, and I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who's been taken out to the street and be, been beheaded or been beaten in, in the square because of their faith here in America. And you say, well, so how do we know persecutions? Ah, I see a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We do hear of periodically a shooting that's taken place somewhere, and people say, well, that was because they were attacking maybe Christians. Even some people were saying, do you believe in Jesus? If you have, I'm going to take your life. That's not normally happened, though, from one corner to the next. So we got to stop and look at the word persecution and say, what does that actually mean? See, according to the New Testament, the word diako is the Greek word for persecution, which means to harass someone, especially because of beliefs. To harass somebody. And if you stop and think a moment, say, have I ever been harassed because of my faith? Has anyone ever made fun of me because of my faith? Has anyone ever made my life difficult because of my faith? We must not downplay what's happening in America. We must not minimize the extent to which traditional Christianity and, tra and traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in our country. Because if you stand up and say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christian values, many people will label you as a hater or as a bigot and say, well, you're not loving. The fines... The lawsuits, job loss, the public disdain, these are not figments of imagination. They're taking place right here in America. No amount of PR work is going to rescue the church from being thought by some as backward and bigoted. That's what we're experiencing probably mostly right now. See, you can't out-nice your way out of, just, out of justice your way into cultural acceptance. Not, not if you hold traditional biblical views, especially when it comes to gender and sexuality. Many people will call you a hater. It does not help the church or fellow Christians insist that we kindly submit then to the world's pressures and just back up and don't speak the name of Jesus so loudly. We have an opportunity in the midst of a persecution amidst the difficult times, we have an opportunity to defend one another and to lift up the name of Jesus. See, if you stand as a Christ-centered home, you will face persecution at some level. It might be ridicule. It might be a loss of job. It might be a lawsuit. It might be passed over for the promotion. It might be being labeled as intolerant or a bigot or not loving. And I'm fearful that in the near future, especially our younger people, if they say, I am a Christian, they will start to face some physical persecution on much regular basis. So what do we do with that? If we're going to be a Christ-centered home, how do we handle that? I think we have to be prepared. It's always better to be prepared for something before it comes. And so let me give you four directives on how to be prepared for persecution. First of all, expect it. 
expect it to happen. Paul told Timothy, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we understand that the Apostle Paul is a missionary, and so he's naming a few different cities and saying, I've been in this city, I've been in that city, but this city. And he's saying, you've all seen that, and you've seen the persecution I've been under. And Paul gives the warning, he says, if you want to live a godly life, a Christ-centered life, not Christian in name only, but if you're going to live a Christ-centered life, then be prepared because you will be persecuted. It will come. It will happen. And so what do we do as a family? We have conversations about that. We have conversations around the dinner table. We have conversations maybe as we're rising or as we're going to bed. And when a child comes home and says, this happened because I'm a Christian. I stood for this. And for us to say, you know, that's going to happen. Let's be prepared. Jesus even talked about it. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you also. That persecution comes if we are Christ-centered home. That persecution comes if we say, Christ, you're number one in my priority list. My wife is number two, or my husband is number two. My kids are number three. My job is number four. And everything else comes after that. When you get priorities light, right, we're warned that persecution will come. When you say, I'm going to choose righteousness for me and my family. I'm going to choose God for me and my family. He's going to be first. He's going to be, he's going to be what we center our lives around. The warning is... Persecution will come, so we need to expect it. Secondly, we need to endure it. Paul told the church in Corinth, told the church in Corinth, he says, when you are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Endure it means that, that we're going to live through it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Endure it means we got to realize the persecution, the difficulty we're going to go through, it might last for some times. Many times we pray, Lord, take all this pain away. Lord, take all this difficulty away. Lord, I don't know why I'm going through all these hardships when our prayer maybe should be, Lord, I don't know how long this is going to last, but give me the strength to make it through it. It might be a sickness you're dealing with. It might be someone who's being difficult to you. It may be uh, just because of life that we, we, we live in that difficulties are happening. And for us to have a prayer, Lord, give me the strength to endure it, whether it's for three days or three months or three years or 30 years. Lord, help me to endure it. Help me to endure it in a way that points people towards Jesus. Look what Paul told the church in Philippi. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Why? Because persecution can be a good thing. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is saying because some have gone through hardships, it's actually encouraged other people. It's actually given people confidence to stand for the name of Jesus. And so persecution can be a good thing when we're ready to walk through and endure it and go, you know what, when I walk through my hardship, when I walk through my difficulty and I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and he gives me the strength to endure it, then others around me who watch that 
they're going to grow and they're going to get strengthened. So we walk through hard things. We're going to strengthen the church. We're going to strengthen other brothers and sisters. Thirdly, we need to embrace it. Be prepared to embrace it. You say embrace it. Yeah, grab onto it, actually. The word embrace actually means to hug onto, to hold onto tightly. In 1 Peter, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. However you suffer for a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I mean, I look at that and hear him saying, praise God, embrace it. God, thank you for the trial I'm walking through right now. That's against our culture. God, I don't like the, the, what I'm walking through, but God, I'll grab onto it, and you're using me to walk through it. And so, God, I want to grab on this difficulty. I want to grab on this persecution. And, Lord, I want to praise you in the middle of it, and I want to see you be glorified. See, here's the truth of the matter. Many times when we're walking through life, we're going in a certain direction. If you're walking in life and you're going a certain direction and you're not facing any kind of persecution, you're just kind of strolling along, you're going, I don't have this persecution that you're talking about, Brian. It all feels really good to me. If you're not experiencing a roadblock or a wall of some kind, then may I suggest that maybe you're going in the same direction as the evil one. Because the Scriptures are telling us that if I'm walking with the Lord and I'm leading a godly life, there are going to be some roadblocks. There are going to be some difficulties. There are going to be some hardships that come our way. There's going to be some persecution that gets in the way. And if we're not experiencing it, then Satan says, hey, they're not doing anything to affect God's kingdom. Let's just leave them alone. But when you're doing stuff to affect God's kingdom and you're trying to live out love and you're trying to live out grace and you're trying to live out mercy and you're trying to show people the love of Jesus Christ, you're going to hit some roadblocks. And so we must be prepared to embrace it and go, Lord, I'm living for you. And when the difficulties come, Lord, I'm still going to praise you in the midst of these trials and difficulties. Lastly, what do we do with persecution? I think we respond to it. We respond to it. You say, how do we respond to it? Because many times we think about response. If someone has done me wrong, I'm going to put my fist up. I'm ready to fight. If someone has spoken ill against me, I'm going to speak ill against them. If someone has blasted me on social media, then I'm getting right back on my computer or my phone, and I'm going to give it right back to them and protect myself. We respond to it. Here's how you respond to it. In Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Wait a minute, God, that makes no sense. When someone's talking bad about my family, when someone has spoke untruths about me, you expect me to bless them and not curse them? Yes. You expect me, when they're blasting me, maybe in some social media string that I've been part of, to not blast them back and say, well, you did or you said or you're this or you're that? Yes. To choose a, a, an attitude of grace, to choose a, a position of mercy, to choose a position of forgiveness. And he even goes on further when Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies. And here's a hard one. Pray for those who persecute you. Wait a minute, God, when they're talking ill about my family, I pray for them, yep. God, when they've done physical harm, I pray for them, yep. God, when they throw 100 kids out in the street, I pray for that group of people? Yep. What am I supposed to pray for that? How do I pray for that? God, I pray for their heart to change. 
God, I pray that they would want to receive Jesus. God, I pray that my testimony would be so strong, just like James, whose testimony was so strong that on his way to be beheaded, another man who was walking with him confessed Christ and was beheaded right alongside him. You pray that your testimony is so strong that they see Jesus and the way you handle it and don't see us, our own individual sinful self. We pray, Lord, help me to respond in a way that honors Jesus. Help me to respond with love. That's what we do. We respond to it. Say, why do we do it that way? Why why do we endure it? Why do we embrace it? Why do we expect it? I think it's because it's all about His name. It's all about who Jesus is, and we're supposed to be as Christians, as Christ-centered people, reflecting Jesus, and we want to point people to Jesus. We don't want people to see us. We want them to see Him. I think this video summarizes what I'm trying to say to you this morning. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hallowed be thy name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There's power in the name of Jesus. Take the third commandment, for example. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. For years, I simply thought that meant not swearing or cursing using the Lord's name, but I stumbled across a simple but incredible realization. Because a more literal translation of that commandment actually reads, You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. You shall not use the name of Yahweh casually, complacently, without respect, without value. It's the moment in time I realized that I actually break this commandment all the time. And more often than not, I break it at church. How much value, how much worth do you place on the name of Jesus? As I thought through this, it reminded me of a girl called Susan from Uganda. She's 14 years old and from a strictly Islamic family. One day a visiting speaker came to her school. He spoke about this guy called Jesus who claimed he was a son of God and had come to save the world. And right there, Susan decided to give her life to Jesus. When she got home, her father found out and he was furious. In fact, on one occasion in broad daylight, He grabbed Susan and her younger brother and dragged them outside. He held a knife to their throat and said, Susan, if you do not stop going to church and worshipping God, I will kill you and your brother. But Susan didn't stop. Her father grabbed her. He took her to a room in their house and placed a mat on the floor. He told Susan to sit on that mat and do not move until you are willing to deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Her father turned around, walked out of the room and locked the door. Susan's father didn't return to that room for three months. The only way Susan survived was that while her father was out, Her brother would dig a hole under the door. He would pour water into it for Susan to lap up 
On occasion, he would fry up some banana and slide that under the door to his sister. After about three months, the neighbours began to wonder where Susan was and they asked her brother. He told them and they immediately called the police. When they came, they opened the door and they found Susan. She was sitting on the mat. She was alive, but only just. You see, the bones in her legs had begun to grow and conform to the way she had been sitting. And she weighed 20 kilos. They grabbed her and rushed her to hospital where they began to rehabilitate her. When Susan was asked why she hadn't tried to escape, why she hadn't even left the mat, without missing a beat, she replied, because my father said, if I was to leave that mat, I would be denying Jesus. And I couldn't do that. Worthlessness. It never even seemed to cross her mind, did it? This is exactly what the third commandment is about. A faith driven by a passion for God that realises not only to be in relationship with Him, but to be able to call on His name is among the most sacred privileges we have as Christians. A privilege the world can't conceive and a privilege that we so often take for granted. You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. Susan wouldn't. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Is your family prepared to go to the mat for Jesus? Are you prepared to go to the mat? To stay on the mat? To not deny Christ? No matter what comes your way? You know, it drives me crazy when I hear people use the name of God in vain. Use it haphazardly. Use it in a cussing type way. But you stop and think about it. We all do that every single day take the name of Jesus and we just live haphazardly. We live sometimes like it's worthless. God is calling us, church, in America to be prepared because persecution, if you haven't experienced it, it's coming. It's going to come in stronger and stronger ways as time goes. God is calling us to be people who will go to the mat for Him for the name of Jesus.